Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. When we hear that a baby has been born, what are some of the first questions we ask? When was it born? Where was it born? How much does it weigh? Is it healthy? Is it a boy or a girl? What's its name? What does it look like? Who was there? What was their reaction? In the second chapter of Acts, we hear about a birth. It's the birth of the church. And Luke describes it for us in verses 1 to 13. And in doing so, he answers some of those questions that are so prevalent on a birthday. First question is when. Verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come. Pentecost means 50. It was named that because it came 50 days after Passover. It's also referred to in Exodus 34 as the Feast of Weeks because it came seven full weeks after Passover. And it's really rather fascinating to see how God planned His New Testament timetable to coincide with the feasts of Israel. If you read Leviticus chapter 23, you will find that there were seven feasts that the children of Israel were to celebrate each year. The first was Passover. When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, they were remembering what happened in Egypt and how they took the blood and put it on the doorposts of their houses and how when God saw the blood, He passed over them. And while all Israel was sacrificing their Passover lambs 50 days before this, what happened? Jesus was crucified. The Lamb of God was slain. And Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was celebrated on the Sunday after Passover. And during this feast, they were to offer the first fruits of their grain harvest to the Lord. What happened on the Sunday after Passover in this year? What happened while all over Israel they were offering their first fruits to the Lord? Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The third feast in Leviticus 23 is Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. It was a feast that only lasted one day. It's also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23. And on this day, according to Leviticus 23.20, they were once again to offer first fruits to the Lord. This time, Exodus 34.22 says they were to offer the first fruits of their wheat harvest. And Deuteronomy 16.11 says it was to be a time of rejoicing. So while all Israel is rejoicing and offering the first fruits of the wheat harvest, What happens? The Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. Now, how is that associated with first fruits? Well, I think there's two ways. Number one, the Spirit of God is the first fruits of our inheritance. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, the Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. He gave us the Holy Spirit to ensure us that there would be more to come in our inheritance. 
But I think there's a second way that this idea of first fruits fits in with the birth of the church. And that is that those who are gathered into the church on that day were the first fruits of a full harvest of believers who were to come. You know what's interesting? Do you know what the people of Israel were to offer as first fruits on that day? They weren't just to bring their wheat in and offer it. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 17 says they were to make two loaves of bread. So all over Jerusalem on this day, people were walking around with two loaves of bread. They were bringing them to the temple, giving them to the priest, where the priest would wave them before the Lord as an offering. Now what do those two loaves picture? Well, I think it's real clear. They picture the fact that God was going to take from two bodies, Jews and Gentiles, and He was going to make one. Jesus said in John 10.16, And I have other sheep which are not of this fold, Israel. I must bring them also, and they shall hear My voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. You know what's also interesting? In Leviticus 23.17, it says that these two loaves were to be baked with leaven. Leaven is yeast. Throughout Scripture, it symbolizes sin. This is the only offering in the Old Testament that had leaven in it. Why? Because God was saying, when He made His church, He wasn't going to pick perfect Jews and Gentiles. He was going to take Jews and Gentiles full of leaven. And that's why Leviticus 23.18 says, Along with the bread, you shall present lambs, bulls, and rams, as an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. God was saying, I will take Jews and Gentiles with all their sin because there's a sacrifice to cover that. And that's refreshing, isn't it? When we come to God, we don't have to clean up our act to make ourselves acceptable. We come to Him saying, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Second question, where? Verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Verse 2 tells us that place was a house, which leads us to the assumption that it's the same upper room they were gathered in in chapter 1 and verse 13. But more importantly, they are in the city of Jerusalem. And they are in the city of Jerusalem on one of the three major feast days when people from all over were gathered there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the city of Jerusalem, which normally had a population of 50,000, would often on these feast days be swollen in numbers to well over a million. And so the birth of the church didn't take place in obscurity. It was a very visible and public event. And it's interesting to compare the two. Jesus came into the world in one of the least populated places in Israel, the little town of Bethlehem. Only a few shepherds and the wise men even noticed. The Holy Spirit came into the most populated place in all of Israel on one of the most populated days because God wanted this to be public knowledge. 
Third question, how much did it weigh? How big is it? Notice verse 1. It says, they were all together. Who's the all? Well, if we go back into chapter 1, it's the 120 people mentioned in verse 15. So the church is born with 120 people. I calculate that to be about 18,000 pounds. Is it healthy? Absolutely. It gained 430,000 pounds in the first day because verse 41 tells us 3,000 souls were added to the church. Is it a boy or a girl? Tough question. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that it is the body of Christ. So we could say it's a boy. But John tells us in Revelation 19 it is the bride of Christ. So we could say it's a girl. So you can go either way. You say, well, what is its name? We don't discover its name until chapter 5 and verse 11 where it's called the church. Church is from the Greek word ekklesia. Ek means out. Church means a called out group. A group that is called out of the world. But you know, there's another name given to the church in the book of Acts. We read it in chapter 9 and verse 2. It's also mentioned four other times in the book of Acts. Saul of Tarsus calls it the way. That's the same thing Jesus said about Himself in John 14.6. He said, I am the way. The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. And so the names of the church tell us a lot. It is a group called out of the world and a group that has come to the Father through the only way, the Lord Jesus. Now what is this newborn church like? What are the characteristics of it? Well, in verses 2-4, to four, there are three symbols associated with this event. Verse 2 says there's a noise like a violent rushing wind. Verse 3 says there are tongues as of fire resting on each of them. And verse 4 describes the strange phenomenon of men speaking languages they have never learned. Now this was God's way of confirming that the Spirit had come, but I think it's also God's pictorial way of telling us what this new body would be like and what this new body would do. The first symbol was wind. Notice verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, some commentators try to explain this away by saying that it was a freak weather ph phenomenon. That it was a wind shear or a tornado. But when they say that, they only reveal to us that they really didn't read this verse. Because the verse doesn't say that the wind filled the house. It says the noise, like a wind, filled the house. So as you read this verse, you don't have to imagine that the disciples' hair was blown all over the place. This was a noise. And we don't have to guess where it came from because it says it came from heaven. So here comes a noise out of heaven down upon this house and it fills the entire house. <sighs> now, what does the wind picture for us in Scripture? 
Well, it pictures the Spirit. Remember when Jesus was having his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Here's what he said in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind is sovereign, mighty, powerful, irresistible, invincible. But what really makes the wind unique is that it's invisible. You can hear it. You can see its evidence. But you can't see the wind. And that's to be one of the characteristics of the church. Great things being done through an invisible power. See, people don't look at the church and say, man, they're powerful. People don't look at that flimsy plastic straw stuck in the telephone pole by hurricane winds and say, man, what a straw. They say, there's an invisible power that did that. And that should be true of the church. We are a group of people bound together in Jesus Christ through whom He wants to do great things as we operate in the power, the invisible power of the Spirit of God. And the greatest evidence of that power, as Jesus said in John 3, is people being born again. That is an amazing miracle. Sometimes I look out here and I see some of you and, and I say to myself, didn't I know them when? And sometimes I'm talking to people and we're talking about somebody and I'll say, well, they, they, I go to church with them. And they'll say, they go to church? And some of you told me that you tell people, he's my preacher, and they say, he's a preacher? That's the miracle of God. The wind blows, the Spirit comes, He brings people to Himself. It's not always the people we expect. And it's an amazing miracle. And that amazing miracle will be laid out for us at the end of this chapter as we see 3,000 people born again on this first day of the church. Second symbol was fire. Notice verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Along with the audible symbol, there's a visible symbol, tongues of fire. Now, just as this was not a literal wind, this is not literal fire. It says, as of fire. It looked like fire. And if you'll notice, these tongues of fire rested on each one of them. This was not something that each individual had to work out himself. The Holy Spirit came upon every one of them on this day. Now, why fire? What does fire picture for us in Scripture? I think three things. Number one, fire pictures for us the presence of God. You remember in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses saw the burning bush... It says he came near to the bush and God spoke to him out of the midst of the bush. That fire represented the presence of God. When Moses went up on the mountain to get the law, here's what we read in Exodus 24, 17. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, 
The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Fire symbolizes the presence of God. In Numbers chapter 9, we're told that the children of Israel were led in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. When the pillar moved, they moved. When the pillar set still, they set still. What was that? That was the presence of God leading them. You know what the pillar did when it wasn't moving? Numbers chapter 9 tells us it covered the tabernacle. So that any of the children of Israel could come out at night and they could look at the tabernacle and they would see it covered with the fire of God. Now in Acts chapter 2, who's the tabernacle of God? The church. And what do we see? Fire covering the church. God's making a statement about His presence. Second thing fire speaks to us about is purity. When Moses came up to the burning bush, you remember what God said to him. He said, take the sandals off your feet because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Fire and purity go together. That's why when Elijah was taken up into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2, it says he went on horses and a chariot of fire. Purity. In 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha's servant saw the mountain filled with the army of the Lord, what did he see? Horses and chariots of fire. Purity. In fact, in fact fire itself purifies. When a farmer wants to burn up the thorns and the briars and the useful crops, he uses fire. The refiner uses fire to purify the silver and the gold. And throughout Scripture, God uses those very analogies to describe the way He wants to burn up the dross and the weeds and the garbage in our lives. Fire is purity. Third thing fire speaks of is passion. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. They said in verse 32, Were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? What was happening? Our hearts were on fire. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 verse 9 said, But if I say I will not remember Him or speak any more in His name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot Endure it. There's the passion of God. A hunger for Him that can only be satisfied in Him. I like the words of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Alka Indians, killed while trying to give them the Gospel at the age of 29. Here was his prayer. God, I pray Thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for Thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is Thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one. Just like You, Lord Jesus. Fire is to be the characteristic of the church. The presence of God, creating a passionate hunger for Him that also purifies our lives of those things that have no place. 
And then the third symbol was the use of tongues in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving utterance. Now, what does it mean when it says they were speaking with tongues? Well, some people say that that means they were speaking gibberish. Other people say that means they were speaking with a heavenly language. Neither of those fit the context here. Because the word tongues is the word languages. They were not speaking a heavenly language, they were speaking earthly languages. And the way we know that is, if you look at verse 6, at the end it says, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language? Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues. The thing that makes this amazing is that they were speaking in foreign languages that they had never learned. And the end of verse 4 says they were speaking as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Just as they are today, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. In fact, uh, Josephus quotes Agrippa at that time with this quote. He said, there was no nation upon earth who had not Jews dwelling among them. And Luke says on this occasion, there were Jews in Jerusalem from every nation on the earth. And he calls them here devout men. They were devout enough that they came from every nation to this feast on this day. And perhaps others, because he says they were living there, had actually come to Jerusalem because they wanted to be near the temple, they had established their home there. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. When the sound occurred, what sound? The sound back in verse 2. They heard the sound of the mighty rushing wind coming down. They realized it was coming from this house. They all start moving toward the house, and as they do... The disciples apparently come out of the house, out into the streets, and they start speaking in other languages. And the people are amazed. They're saying, that man's speaking in Latin. That man is speaking Persian. That man is speaking in Arabic. Verse 3, And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, how did they know they were Galileans? Well, because Galileans had an accent. That's like you hear somebody today and say, well, he, he must be from Boston. Or he must be from Alabama. They had accents. Uh, that, that's what gave Peter away when he was in the courtyard of the high priest. He was there kind of being the disciple incognito. And it says they started to figure out that he must be one of the disciples because he was Galilean. You say, well, how do they know? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 73 says, And a little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. You say, well, what difference did it make if they were Galileans? We see they heard them speak, they heard their accent, they knew they were from Galilee, and what did that tell them? That told them, number one, that they didn't grow up in some foreign land. They grew up in Galilee 
had the accent of Galilee, therefore they didn't learn this language by growing up in Persia. It was a miracle. And secondly, they kind of looked at people from Galilee as uneducated, unlearned, coming from the backwoods. I have to be careful here. That, that's kind of like... Uh, Kind of like we say, well, he's from the boot heel. You know, he, 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 he doesn't know any better. That's the way they viewed Galilee. That's why Nathaniel said in John chapter 1 of Jesus, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Why? Because Nazareth was in Galilee. And those in Jerusalem who were educated thought those were the back sticks, the hillbillies. They didn't know any better. And so they hear these men speaking in the streets. They're no, they know they're from Galilee. And they're doubly amazed because that's their background. Verse 8, And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? We hear them in our mother tongue. And then they go on to describe those places they came from. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites. This would be east from Jerusalem in the area of Persia where Jews were taken in the days of Daniel. And residents of Mesopotamia, the word Mesopotamia means between the two rivers, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates, which would be the area where Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews in his day. He goes on to say Judea, which is probably broader than it was in that day. They're probably talking about the area that David and Solomon ruled over that would include Syria as well. And Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, which would be Asia Minor. Then they moved down to Egypt and during that day, numerous Jews lived in Egypt. In fact, historians say that two-fifths of the population of Alexandria was Jewish. Verse 10 goes on to say, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, that would be west of Egypt on the African coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, now they've moved to the west. Those who were born as Jews and those Gentiles who join the Jewish religion. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, Cretans from the island of Crete off the southern coast of Greece and Arabs which bordered Judah on the east. And then he goes on to say, or they go on to say, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. We come from all these different countries speaking all these different languages and we hear these Galileans speaking every one of the languages that we've come from. And what are they saying? They're talking about the mighty things of God. Now what's the point here? Why are they speaking in other languages? Well, let me give you two reasons. Number one, it was a sign. And for that, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 21. Here Paul quotes Isaiah 28.11 In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. By the lips of strangers, by foreign languages, I will speak to this people. What people? Israel. Now, look at verse 22. So then, 
Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Who are the unbelievers? Well, he just told us, quoting Isaiah 28. The unbelievers are unbelieving Israel. Tongues were a sign to unbelieving Israel. When the people of Israel heard these men speaking in other languages, the message was a message to Israel. And the message was this. No longer was God going to confine Himself to one people. No longer was He going to work through one nation. No longer was He going to speak one language. Their unbelief had settled that. And the the gift of tongues was a sign to the people of Israel that the blessing had left Israel and gone elsewhere. So first of all, it was a sign. Secondly, it was prophetic. Because what happened here on the first day of the church was really prophetic in terms of Jesus' commission that He gave in chapter 1 and verse 8. Because there He said, I want you to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. On the birthday of the church, God was hearing the first chords of this symphony of praise that was coming from all these different languages that one day will be the chorus of heaven. Because it says in Revelation chapter 5, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship together at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And so on this first day of the church, there's already the initiation of these, these languages speaking forth the praise, the mighty things of God. And it's prophetic because that's what the church is going to become and that's the very voices of praise that God would hear in the future. So what are the characteristics of this newborn church? Wind, the invisible power of the Spirit. Fire, the presence of God. The passion to know Him. The purity that that brings. And languages. That we are the proclaimers of God's message to the world. And we are the proclaimers of God's praise to Him. One more question. What was the reaction? As is usually the case when God's truth is presented, some in the crowd accepted it and some rejected it. Notice verse 12. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Some were amazed and perplexed and they were honestly asking the question, what does this mean? And that sets the table for Peter to stand up as we will see next week and answer that question. But while they are asking that question, there were others in the audience that were answering it. Verse 13, But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Some already came to a conclusion. They said, they're drunk. Isn't it funny how two people can view the working of God and come to such opposite conclusions? Let me ask you a more important question this morning. What is your reaction? The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. He doesn't need to come again. He's already here. If you're a believer, He indwells you this morning. 
And we ought to see similar things taking place in our lives. How about the wind? In your Christian life, do you feel like you're blowing yourself along trying to get to the next checkpoint? Or are you yielded to the Spirit allowing Him to work His invisible power through you to accomplish far more than you could ever dream? How about the fire? Is the presence of God evident in your life? Do people look at you and say, I really see the Lord in Him. I see the Lord in her. Or is it just a little flickering candle? How about the passion? Do you have a passion to know Him? A hunger that won't be satisfied anywhere else? Is there anything that gets you more excited than the things of God? Do people go away from you saying, He's on fire for God? She's on fire for God. They've got a passion there. How about the evidence of the refining work of God in your life? Is He burning up the dross in your life? Or are you still the same old loaf of leavened bread you were when you first came to the Lord? And how about the tongues? I'm not talking here about the miraculous gift. I'm talking about using your tongue for the Lord. Do you take those opportunities to praise Him? Or do you find yourself clamming up when you see the streets of Jerusalem full of people who might mock you? As we study the book of Acts, I don't want our reaction to be, that's interesting. I want our reaction to be, Lord, do that with me. And Lord, do that with us. You see, to, to accomplish that, you don't need more of the Holy Spirit. He's already here. You've got all of Him. He just needs more of you. In fact, He needs all of you. And I want to challenge you this morning, afresh, to say, Lord, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you me. I'm taking those areas where I've been holding back and I've been keeping things to myself. I'm going to give those to you as well. I'm going to have David come forward and he's going to sing a song called The Altar in closing this morning. And as he sings, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about an altar. Because what happens on an altar? A sacrifice. And this morning as he sings, I want you to get honest with the Lord about your relationship with Him. And I want you to honestly place yourself on the altar today. Say, Lord afresh, I'm giving myself to You 100%. And I'm taking those areas... I've been keeping from you and I'm going to lay those on the altar as well today. And Lord, I want you to, to have free reign in my life so that you can start to accomplish those things that you desire in me. And I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you today. Maybe you want to do that in the quietness of your own heart. 
Maybe you want to come forward this morning while he sings. We'll, we'll make this stage an altar this morning if that's your desire. You come forward and kneel here. I'll kneel with you to say, yes, Lord, I'm giving myself to you 100%. That's the way God begins to work in our lives to accomplish what we're going to read about in the book of Acts.